Hello, my name is Steve D'Agostino, and my co-host Anne Fernald and I welcome you to the Twice Over podcast, because to teach is to learn twice over. In this episode, STEM Communities, we are joined by Robert Beer, Associate Professor of Chemistry and the Fordham College at Rose Hill Associate Dean for STEM and Pre-Health Education at Fordham University, who shares his thoughts about the challenges and opportunities for teaching and learning in this next phase of the pandemic. We're really, really thrilled to have as our guest on today's podcast, Robert Beer, who is a professor of chemistry at Fordham and an associate dean for STEM and and pre-health education at the Rose Hill campus, our Bronx campus. Welcome. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you for inviting me. I'm very happy to be here and talk about this subject. Robert is one of the heroes of getting the university through the pandemic, especially in those early days in the switch to online and thinking about hybrid learning and the specific and particular challenges in the STEM field. So I just wanted to acknowledge that, Robert. I think it was a very difficult and challenging time that everybody contributed to. And that's actually one of the things that I wanted to say from the get-go is the cooperation of students, administrators, and and faculty in in being able to move from what was pre-pandemic to pandemic mode was just an, an incredible experience. It was really a team effort, and I'm glad to have been part of it, frankly. It, it was a wonderful experience, despite how difficult it was. What was it specifically that posed itself as the most kind of a couple of the most urgent or pressing challenges that you faced and how you figured out how to solve them? Some of it's quite a blur, frankly. Everyone working, it seemed like 24-7 for several weeks as we moved from being in person completely to remote without a lot of tools on the scale that we needed to do it. People individually had been able to do some things that were aligned with being remote, but to be able to convert completely from uh, in-person to remote, I think was really challenging. I think it's natural for everybody to think negatively is that we can't do it. People leaned upon heavily people who had done it or knew how to do it and had a little bit more of a positive attitude about doing it were incredibly helpful to lean on. Just from a psychological standpoint, I think that that was really important because then it cleared your mind to think, okay, how am I going to do this? And one of the biggest challenges clearly is just like with creative arts is in the sciences would be laboratories. How can laboratories be turned around so they could be done remotely? And I think there were over time, a lot of solutions that were come up with that we applied successfully over the year and a half or so where we either were hybrid or completely remote. And I think the cooperation of faculty and the creativity of the faculty were really important here with the leadership as partners and allowing everybody the flexibility to find the solution that they needed to. So that's kind of the operating environment that we worked in that you're very familiar with. So I gathered the chemistry department, the math department, computer science department, leadership, and they themselves turned to their faculty and say, how do you fit your laboratory course into this new learning modality? And so everybody came up with lots of different solutions that worked for them or they thought they could do. And I think one of the things you have to keep in mind, just like when we asked our students to undergo this 
change. We're trying to find out what they can do. And I think it was very similar with the faculty. What is it that you can do with your course that fits your course? I think that was really important to be able to be able to listen and to be sensitive to. So for example, in the bio department, they wanted to do classes as much as possible in a hybrid or or in-person in terms of planning for Obviously, they had to turn as the institution closed to classes. They had to come up with labs they could do virtually, um, and they did that. Chemistry the same, physics the same. We were in March at that point. Half the courses were over, so fortunately, students got the in-person experience that they needed to. It was more about getting ready over the period of the summer for the fall, where it was unknown if we were when we were going to return to in-person and being able to launch an entire course, laboratory course or possibly two semesters of it. Faculty devoted a lot of time to that. And for example, in the bio department, they front-loaded their courses with uh, hybrid activities or in-person virtual activities because they anticipated that in the winter, we would not have to go remote. So even using their understanding of biology and disease, they anticipated the fact that we would probably go remote later in the year as virus increased, the transmission increased. And and so they front-loaded their courses with in-person activities and, and switched the virtual ones to later. Chemistry, actually, over the summer, built kits that students and experiments that you could do to take home. That actually worked fantastically. So on Zoom, they did experiments with students in synchronously in real time where the students were doing experiments at home. So instead of using calcium carbonate in the lab and a test tube, At home, they had baking soda and a a kit that had a test tube in it and could add vinegar to it and get the same experiment done, more or less. In physics, they created simulated introductory labs that modeled a lot of the experiments they did in person. And a lot of these resources clearly were online. There are companies that contacted people about simulation programs, and some people went that direction, being selective about it. So I think there were lots of different solutions like I said, in-person ones that were hybrid, remote ones in which you know students did experiments at home, and ones that were simulations. So we had all solutions for all different types of introductory, let's say, lab courses, which were amongst the most challenging. And the scale is crazy because you have 400 students in general chemistry lab, not you know right. F- 15, right? That's so 400 test tube kits yes. with the baking soda and the what kind of vinegar is going to work and don't use the balsamic glaze. That's not going to get you a... Exactly. And one of the things that I do is I, I'm in just only in the administration, but I'm an instructor. And so uh, we piloted these things in the summer, in the summer courses. And so we were ready to go from, you know, 40 students to 400 Uh, in the fall. So that's not to say it worked perfectly and that it wasn't a struggle for every different professor. Just even your personality is different on Zoom than uh, one person from one person to the other. So one of the things I needed to learn, for example, and I think I learned from this podcast and and from you and, and Steve is just to ask the students how they're doing at the beginning of a lecture. Something I had never done before. I'd see my students come into class and I'd say, okay, chapter seven, we're going to look at acid-base chemistry. What is a proton? Engage them that way. So there was a lot more. There would be students stopping and turning off their cameras saying like, my mom used the orange juice that we were supposed to use in the experiment. Those were not problems at Fordham in a classroom that we had when we were doing the lab. So didn't go without hiccups. I think the outcomes were good. 
And I know that because when the students rejoined in person after taking general chemistry online, let's say lab in online, and started organic chemistry, they are clearly not your ordinary sophomore. The freshmen take the general chemistry lab. They go into their sophomore year. Now they're in person. It's They're very nervous. It's very nerve-wracking for the professor. And they did fine. They did fine in the in-person labs. That's so, amazing. You know, we were just really pleasantly surprised because we also experienced, as just everyone probably has mentioned on this podcast, and you both as instructors, as students have returned to being in person, how difficult it is to make that readjustment to be in person. I think much yes. more difficult for a student than a faculty member because they've been studying online. They may have been using uh, flipped material. And now the, lecture, the, the, the professor is lecturing on the material that would ordinarily be flipped, right, in person. And they they can't stop and start the video. The professor's turning to them and say, what do you think of this? If it's chemistry, again, because I'm a chemistry professor, where would the hydroxide add to this benzene ring in this experiment? It wasn't the question that they had when they were looking at the flipped lecture, right? But now they're in person. So um, many of the challenges, I think, were uh, among the students to return in person after learning online. We've been hearing a lot about learning loss as a result of the pandemic. What are your thoughts about this in terms of that one or two years now that students may have been learning remotely? What are, the, what are their prospects going forward for careers in the sciences or in, or in the health professions? I think that a big part of preparation, uh, either for the health sciences, is that experiential part, not getting the practice that you need to have the experience that you need in the laboratory is definitely something that is a challenge, I think, for the students. However, as I pointed out, in, in our case, we were pleasantly surprised that it was not affected. On the other hand, I think the studying, the change in the type of studying that was done is something that has been a little bit unex- more of an unexpected challenge. So I don't think necessarily the faculty members lightened academic demands as much, but there was a different style of learning that the students encountered being remote. And whether there was a a loss or not, it's more like a mastery of studying STEM that was lost, perhaps. Maybe if I can make that distinction. So it's not all of a sudden that all like half the material was cut necessarily from or that they only learned half the material. I think it's just a a matter of the way that students studied is different. And when they go to, let's say, a health professional school, they're not going to be learning remotely. They'll be learning in person, especially if it's like, let's say, a physiology lab where they're doing a dissection or working with a cadaver or clinical experience later. I think that it will just take some time for students to shift. I hope we're not in a continuous cycle of being remote and in person, that it kind of ends up being kind of restore or we're restoring our ordinary way of learning, I guess, that would be important. Hopefully there'll be gains, right? I think that's something that we, we might get to in terms of what we've learned about the pandemic and what we can take away from it. But as terms of loss, I think that it's more of that, the kind of the mastery of studying, of thinking and talking in person, of the experiential part, even though, you know, like I said, we did the experiments at home. It's certainly different when it's in a lab setting, when there's 20 other students with you, 
not on Zoom, but with right. you in the classroom and the instructor's moving around and you have a little less flexibility, you know, the classes, the lab section might be just two hours or three hours. And on Zoom, there's a little bit more forgiving. So all the things I think that we did try to be during the period in which we taught virtually or in, even in a hybrid mode, I'll just point out in my class, in the inorganic class that I taught at advanced laboratory, I actually had the students come in to do a lab, but only one at a time. So I would have a student come in, let's say we had six labs during a semester. Ordinarily, all students would come in and do one lab at a time with me. Instead, what I did is I chose one student to come in to work with me, and then I videotaped the lab synchronously with the other students being remote on Zoom. So they got a little lab experience, at least one lab. That's different, obviously, than when you know we had the ordinary lab experience. I think that it's really that lack of experience in learning styles. And honestly, professors too, I, I think that like we're on Zoom right now, we've taken away some things that I think are really important. I think that this, been, this experience has been transformative for me as an instructor, I don't understand or know yet in terms of learning what's going to happen. The example that I, I gave earlier, it's trivial, right, about asking the students how they are is something that I've learned I don't think I'll ever go back to not asking how they are in class or not in class. I'm wondering what are the students going to take away from this? And we were talking about the negatives, right, from this experience. And what are the positives they're going to take with that? That I haven't, I don't have a, a way of assessing or know yet. And I think one of the things that we'll recognize, at least in STEM, is, uh, again, I'm all talking on the instructor side. This is what I'm hearing, is that people are realizing, okay, metacognition is important. Mindset is important. We're starting to think about how we can put that in our coursework. And so that asking people how they are is part of that, right? Absolutely. But the question is, is what are the students telling me back. They'd say they're fine, but I don't know if they're fine. You know, are they going to recover from this? What are the effects five years now for these students on these students? Are they going to be good health professionals? One of the things I think about a lot is that for the rest of our careers, like we're in this massive longitudinal study, right? I mean, I don't know what the control group is, but of what years of learning loss turn out to have been the most critical? So is it the kids who were in kindergarten during the pandemic? Oh, those are the ones who really suffered. Is it middle school during the pandemic? Is it the people who lost their senior year of high school and their freshman year of college? You know, what are the two years? And, you know, fortunately, unfortunately for us, if we're so lucky as to live as long, long enough to see it through, likely given the age of the three of us are for the rest of our careers, we will always be teaching students who've lived through this pandemic. I think there's a distribution, I presume. Well, I was going to say that I guess 30 years from now, when I'm in my 80s, my doctor would have gone to medical school on Zoom. Yes, for a portion of it, right? Um, for a portion of it, right. Right. Um, and so... I'm, ner I'm nervous about that. Just right. <laughs> I, 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 I would say I, that, was a, that was a really pregnant pause. Right. I'm sorry. Here. I would say simply for, about my kids is that, and this is what I'm hoping for our students right now, we're seeing the worst and that they will recover just like, you know, I just believe in persistence and resilience of the human being. Right. And while I know I've been changed by the experience you know, I, I talked about some positive habits. I'm sure I've got some negative ones as well. 
that I've developed that I don't know if I'll be able to get rid of. I think the students are even at that age, which is around a, a little bit younger than my, my kids, but uh, who aren't kids, they're adults in their 20s, that they'll restore their lives, I think, because I think students, just like faculty and our institution, are survivors. So I'm being strangely optimistic here because I tend to be cynical and think go to the negative quite often. Overall, I think I'm generally optimistic here. And I think that there it's not that there will be no effect. I think that will will they'll be changed, but they will be able to restore their ability to exhibit the mastery of studying, I said that I think was lost. What we have to do is as faculty is be continue to be kind, continue to be flexible continue to be understanding. I think, unfortunately, in Anne's case, there's no control group. Uh, as you said, there's no, everyone was affected. And going forward, everything is changing. We can't just change the one variable, pandemic, no pandemic. You know, I think that the jury, I guess, to use the cliche, is still out on students. I can see more effects on instructors. Uh, you know, I think that's easier to, to actually see than, than what the stu- how the students are going to fare. One of the major issues that we struggled with early in the pandemic and the move to online had to do with academic integrity, which seemed especially pressing in the STEM fields. And I'm wondering if that is still a persistent issue. I would say as a group, the STEM faculty were relieved to move away from the online evaluation so they don't test people necessarily with traditional tests online at all because of concerns about academic integrity, which was a, a really, you know, a big problem. I did an informal survey of both faculty and students, and that increased quite substantially during the pandemic, violations of academic integrity, according to self-reporting by faculty and students, using these kind of traditional methods, right, of testing. So like, let's say a multiple choice test, you know, uh, solve these six problems. But I think that still remains a challenge. If you wanted to try to assess students' knowledge, you could use, there are there are software platforms and things that you could use that would randomize questions and things like that to avoid possible, you know, for sake of a better word, cheating. We did spend a lot of time talking about why cheating occurs amongst the STEM faculty. Uh, I think they, there was some gains there, but I think there's still we're still behind in the way that we think about academic integrity and how to do online assessments in STEM without draconian types of things that Anne, you and I have talked about before, like uh, faculty members doing environmental scans, having everybody on Zoom, using eye that tracking software that does the iris scan eye tracking software, I mean, things like that. So that are very uncomfortable. I have to admit, though, that I use do-it-yourself proctoring, just personal experience in my class, in my courses. I mean, I set down rules. The students agreed to them. I thought that because I taught an upper division course, largely there was, uh, in my personal experience, not any more cheating than I'd seen in the classroom, which was very little. I think it can work. In other words, it's a it's a synchronous test. They get it at that moment. You know, all their cameras are on. They're not allowed to use any other devices. They were accustomed to it because they did it a lot with other instructors. It's not comfortable, or it doesn't even almost seem right as an instructor. And I'm I 
never really, I don't know how the students felt about it, honestly. So, so you said something I found really interesting, which you alluded to conversations with STEM faculty about why students cheat. And that seems to me to be a reorientation to a preventive rather than a sort of, you know, post hoc model. Can you talk a little bit about those conversations and how the faculty responded and engaged? Sure. I Let's look at the chronology. You know, basically we went remote um, just to try to understand the atmosphere, right? We went remote, people scrambled to figure out what would be effective learning and assessing because we have to turn in grades, even if it's pass fail, right? It's a tool to, to tell the students how they're doing and to know how they're doing as well. What happened is, is that the professors did not necessarily put things in place initially, but found that like grades were increasing, students were reporting academic integrity violations to them, they were upset. Faculty said, well, what am I going to do? I have this dilemma, which we started with, mastery versus assessing critical thinking. I, I need to know, I would like to know both or have both. The students need to learn a certain amount of content. Suddenly scores were going up to a degree that was not suggesting, wow, they're really hitting the books, but instead was suggesting someone's, uh, you know, getting a help here. Right. And obviously there's simple plagiarism. That was something people reported uh, an increasing amount of. They had shifted a lot more. Some faculty had shifted from exams to waiting, like homework assignments. We talked about moving to projects. So that was something that was a concern because there would be more, in essence, quote unquote, copying, right, that would be done, right, and, and those circumstances. So whether it was code or, you know, if we're talking about computer science or even just written work. So uh, if it was project-based or homework, um, there were issues related to that. Actually, sometimes people did more poorly than when they had a traditional assessment. They would have a heavier weighted homework assignment, wouldn't do them on their own individually as they should have, and then have the exam, and then they would bomb the exam because they hadn't done the practice. All these things were occurring more frequently and were concerned. There was discussion about how to try to intercept or try to help avoid this. And obviously, Anne and you were part of these discussions using software, uh, advising faculty to uh, do some things differently. We started developing the do-it-yourself do you know, kind of proctoring methods that aren't that really different from proctoring an exam in person, frankly. You are walking around the classroom and students are separated. They're not allowed any devices. It just happened to be on Zoom, but there are other complications doing it, uh, technical ones. In several meetings, we started to have the conversations about why students cheat. Was this just because they were lazy? But a lot of other people said, no, it, this is a, a bigger discussion that we should have. So there were some discussions about students' fears of failure, being embarrassed, pressure from parents, not having good sense of self-efficacy where they feel they're competent, that they're imposters, that they don't self-identify as good learners. Those are conversations that people started having as well, which was kind of refreshing because they weren't commonly the types of things that we've talked about. And it's kind of a more or less the, the same thing I was mentioning earlier about how I think the pandemic has changed us so that we do, again, starting with the trivial, the trivial opening line, like, how's everybody doing? And taking that a little bit deeper and, and saying, why? 
what are you feeling? What is what are what are the things that are involved with your learning STEM coursework or the STEM curriculum? Do you have to commute? Do you have to? And then getting a little bit more into the psychological part, are you choosing to study STEM because your parents want you to? The students, they even thought that maybe cheating was okay because their plans are largely professional oriented and they want to just get to medical school and not necessarily have a liberal arts education. So I think that those are things that where it goes like, oh, maybe we should try to emphasize the value of having a liberal arts education and not necessarily just being pre-professional oriented. Having these conversations both explicitly among colleagues and then making them transparent for our students. Like, why does it matter? Why do we care that you trade work? And like, in what context is it okay? Like you talk about group projects. In those contexts, you know, a certain kind of collaboration is the point. That's not always visible to our students. When you have a lab partner, should your labs be the same, exactly the same? Are you turning in one document? Are you turning in two documents? So do you talk to them about that kind of stuff? In the instructional guidance that the students are given about lab is that in that particular case, they're sharing data, but do working up the data is done individually. So I can make that distinction. That's different actually than a collaborative project in a sense. So but you might not know that if you were a freshman, right? If you do four oh, labs and right. then a group project, you might not know that the group project is a different project. That's actually really true. And obviously brings up the whole point of this explosion of the software that I was talking about, it's so great and, and it, it we're, we're allowing faculty to be flexible is that there's all these different, I mean, I can't imagine being a student here, especially under the conditions of the pandemic when I've got a chemistry course, it's got two software platforms, the textbook, the instructors, you know, specific directions, which, you know, depend on what kind of work you're turning in. So obviously in exams, individual, uh, you're working in labs, so you can share data, but you can't work it up separately. And then you're doing a project and a presentation where you're supposed to be collaborating. Okay. That's one out of the five or six classes you have. So multiply, let's say I just mentioned five or six different ways of learning, right? In one class. So five times six, that's 30 different ways of learning. And, and of course, the subject matters are completely different. So I'm going from you know, I'm a chemistry instructor. So I'm going like, this is the most important thing. This is the only thing that's important. There is nothing other than chemistry that you're supposed to be learning or that I care about. And so that class ends at 1.30 in the afternoon. You walk out of that room and this professor just assumes that your entire life is his chemistry lab. But at 1.40, you're walking into your comp two class. So um, <laughs> where the professor's going, so share with me your thoughts about our reading. And you're like, what? I'm just wondering how you think about encouraging students in a huge lecture to become research students when they may feel like, well, people like me don't normally go on to get that kind of fancy job. Like I'm not the kind of person for whatever reason, because of my race, because of my gender, my socioeconomic class. Oh, Professor Beer isn't going to want me for his summer research student. So how do you open up their sense of who counts as the kind of person who can carry on with this? Well, I think it's good communication. I think this is certainly a weakness at 
I would not pick on Fordham necessarily, but certainly it is a weakness at Fordham. Uh, but I think nationally, and there's a lot of effort, I'm sure you're aware of, over the last 10 to 15, 20 years to try to develop programming for students specifically, let's say, of a socioeconomic, particular socioeconomic group to be able to increase that the underrepresented pipeline of STEM career scientists or professionals. It is really challenging. The thing that's really important here, I would just say, is that communication, communication, communication is super, super important. Making students feel welcome, having professors that look and talk like them. A lot of faculty or administrators don't realize that I'm a first-gen student. Do you share that with your students? I mean, I've heard you say that many times, and I I, know that about you. And is that something your students know? Only recently, but generally not. It doesn't come up because we don't read a, a, maybe a book about that, you know, and it's, it's problematic. So for a STEM, I think, instructor. How so? Uh, I think it's just something that you don't, we, you know, I think in terms of a culture that we don't necessarily, I would certainly tell someone who's working with me as an undergraduate researcher, right? Yeah. But you're, you're saying before that, what happens, right? So yeah, how do they get to know some of the faculty and that they're more welcome and that they could possibly do this as a career? So like I said, I was talking about programming. We have C-STEP here, that New York State program that provides opportunities for students. There's the program that I funded by NSF that I have that's called Aspires. It's a first year program for socioeconomically disadvantaged students. We now have, we're in phase one of a Howard Hughes Medical Institute grant that's for inclusiveness. I think those are the things we need to slowly move forward or, you know, it'd be great if it was rapid, uh, of course, but I think that to be practical, uh, those are things that, you know, the institution, our institution specifically, as well as the STEM leadership and, and instructors need to be able to do to lower these barriers for students to, to allow everyone to be able to have an opportunity to realize they could possibly be a career scientist like their professor or, you know, someone else that they admire and motivated. I'll just tell you a really brief story that I remember about uh, undergraduate research, for example. So it's not that instructors and the, and the institutions don't make an effort to try to include students. It's sometimes the students just sense of awareness and as well as their families, because they might come from a first generation family or someone that's unaccustomed to the American educational system, especially higher education. We sent out an email saying there's an undergraduate research, you should apply for a summer undergraduate research position. And so a student finally wrote back saying there's some information posted in this email. There's a link to a website. My parents are asking me about this because I want to do it, but it's going to cost money. So how do I do it if it's going to it's going to cost my parents money. These are paid. They're scholarships. Just a simple kind of communication, as I was mentioned before, is something that we struggle with. That's a that's a challenge because there's these barriers. I think it's really important to always include, get student input in these things generally. The students should be partners in developing whatever kind of thing you're going to do because ultimately they're going to do it. So We always like to ask our guests to talk to us about a teacher who's mattered to them. I do have some people in mind that I can think of, of course, but I am going to try to give kudos to my colleagues, including you and Steve. I think first, because I often think of my colleagues 
as my teachers. And I learn an awful lot for them. So I was just pointing out earlier in this conversation, how during the pandemic, how seeing how people responded, seeing, you know, I learned an awful lot from administrators, faculties, students. Uh, I was talking about how students teach us how to teach. I, I, those, those are all my current teachers that I, I get a lot of inspiration from. But I think my high school chemistry teacher, honestly, uh, was an influence on me, not necessarily to study chemistry, but simply because he was such a kind, nice person and really calm, enthusiastic about science, and he loved doing experiments. Um, he often did in-class demonstrations, and I think that I love experiments. So it's oftentimes the instructors, I think that somehow, whether I like them or not, or they're important to me or not, that I identify with, that I think or think like, that have you know, probably that have influenced me the most. So it's not necessarily a transformation that I undergo, but it's more like, oh, I really like that teacher because that rang true. The, his style, the way that they talked or thought were kind of reinforced what I think is important. Another one would be my graduate school advisor, Steve Lippert, who's now retired. He had a huge group and I spent a lot of time with him and there was not necessarily a lot of one-on-one attention, but I spent a lot of time around him and just modeling the way he conducted himself and the way he thought. I constantly find myself oftentimes thinking about critical science problems like him. It's always shocking. It's a little scary because it's your graduate advisor and there's usually not necessarily, there's usually a kind of a a hate hate or a love hate relationship with that person especially a little edible yeah especially especially in science so I am a little freaked out by that but I go like oh my gosh that's exactly what Steve would have said or taught or or thought even like like stuff that comes out of my mouth that I tell students even I go like oh that's Lippert you know speaking through me so it's kind of weird because that's such a long time ago now you know I'm 60 I was a graduate student at 21 22 so I can't quite believe that I'm still channeling him I've never shared that with him I should probably tell him but I really have to credit him especially with regard to thinking about science uh, chemistry specifically my research area inorganic chemistry and talking to students that's definitely you know someone that's kind of like in my head so I'll leave it there Robert what a what a treat to talk to you. Really, really thank you for making the time for us. I've loved it. It's certainly given me a lot of food for thought. Just having to think a little bit about preparing to talk to you guys made me really think hard about what we've been through the last two years and what we'll be going through because it's certainly not over. We, you know, how are students going to fare now, both at Fordham going forward as well as after Fordham? Uh, so I'm really interested in finding out. Uh, we'll see. Twice Over Podcast is available on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify, with new episodes appearing twice each week. For host and guest bios and show notes, please visit our website, twiceoverpodcast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at twiceover1 or email us at twiceoverpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening.